0: Thank you for tuning in to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. The following podcast is from our original show, the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, which ran over 600 episodes from 2009 to 2022, and is exactly the kind of thing you can expect from us here, albeit with an expanded focus on all the best in horror, science fiction, and fantasy. There's a new free episode every month, or subscribe at patreon.com slash to get new shows every week. Thanks again, and
1: enjoy. hppodcraft.com. Now on Patreon. <laughs> An elderly woman named Maureen, neatly dressed and manicured, sat on a bus stop bench in San Francisco. She was watching the leisurely approach of an old shopping cart vagabond up the sidewalk. Maureen believed in being courteous to everyone, but the vagabond woman strongly irritated her. Perhaps because Maureen had put her dear little buddy to sleep not so long ago, and the gaunt, sunburned, wild-haired tramp was pushing, along with other things in her cart, a box with a tiny, sick-looking little dog in it.
2: A whippet. That was the intro paragraph to a story by Michael Shea called Sithogua
0: to thought he was a supernatural entity that was created by the author Clark Ashton Smith in 1929 and referenced by H.P. Lovecraft in a number of his stories. And it's one of the many gibberish names you can discover here at the H.P. Lovecraft Literary
2: Podcast. We're here at H.P. I am Chris Flanke.
0: I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And that reader we heard at the top was the one and only Andrew Lehman, making mm-hmm. his triumphant return to the show.
3: Hi, Chris and Chad. It's me, Patton Oswalt. <laughs> I'm so excited to be in this recording booth with two two of the... Wait a minute. Sexiest guys I've ever laid. Keep reading. Keep reading. Guys, they really script this show out. Wow. Folks, if you didn't figure that out,
0: Chris and I are both in person together, which is a rare thing, but there's an even more beautiful and wonderful thing (laughs) happening here.
3: Beautiful and wonderful
2: thing. That's right. Yeah, a freeloader uh, came into the studio uh, (laughs) and let's uh, cramp our style by being our third. Uh, And we said, yeah, sure. Why not? We're open-minded.
3: I heard there were free Triscuits. (laughs) Heck yeah. Uh,
2: Patton Oswalt.
3: Hi, everybody. Hi, listeners. Hello, fellow fans of the HP PodCraft. I've been listening. You know what? I didn't listen from the get-go. I discovered it after you guys were about 20 episodes in. But it's a... Whoa, it's a yeah, so then I went back from the beginning and started listening and loved it. So thank you. thank you so much. That blows my mind. Thanks for giving me yet another Lovecraft itch that I can scratch.
0: We were just talking about the first time we heard of you, which was when we were roommates here in L.A. in the late 90s. And we had a third roommate who came home and said, I just went to the show, and I think it was at Cafe 101, if they used to do stand up. That's right. And he said, I just saw this comedian. He's of our generation. He talks about Star Wars and comics. You got to see him. His name is Patton Oswalt. And I thought, that sounds
3: like an investigator in a Call of Cthulhu adventure. (laughs)
0: Uh, That was like my first. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Does (laughs) he Mm -hmm. study medieval metaphysics? Exactly.
3: uh, Well, Patton Oswalt wasn't born in this town, but he does teach at the (laughs) university. He doesn't keep regular <laughs> office hours, but I can get a—I know someone who can get a note to him. That's yeah. right, that kind of thing. <laughs> hey, have you guys—you guys have visited Providence? I take. It? Oh yeah. yeah. Have you been to Swan Point Cemetery to make the pilgrimage? Yes, we did. Okay, so I went there. I took a gig at Lupos for the express purpose of visiting Swamp Point Cemetery and seeing Lovecraft's grave. So the the gig paid for the trip, basically. Mm-hmm. And I did a gig in Boston. Then I took the train down from Boston to Providence to take a train trip into Providence. It was like I was doing this little fantasy tour for myself. Of course. And We've all uh, done it. So, yeah, I get there, and it, and it's a rainy day, and I get a cab, and the cab takes me to Swan Point Cemetery, and we're driving. I don't know where the grave is, and mm. we're driving around, driving around. I'm like, I cannot figure out where this thing is. And a couple of times, we passed this attendant in the graveyard. She was this kind of young uh, black woman, kind of squat in her vest, like, and, and she was standing next to her car that was parked, but she looked like, oh, this is the, the person that runs the cemetery, or like a Parks and Rec person, basically, mm-hmm, you yeah, know, That yeah. and I go, hey, let's pull over and ask her really quick so the cab driver pulled over I stepped out of the cab and I mean I stepped I'm halfway out of the cab and so she sees me for all of half a second and before I she goes you want that monster man he's uh (laughs) he's right over there like like just took one look at me oh this these fucking guys yeah he's over there like and and she was standing right near the Phillips family obelisks, because mm-hmm. that's all she gets all day, are guys looking like me going, excuse me, um, <laughs> beastly sorry to interrupt you, but I was hoping to, and then when I stood over the tombstone, I called I'm going to drop a name. I called Harlan Ellison on my uh, cell phone oh, wow. and said, hey, I'm standing at Lovecraft's grave right now. He goes, I help pay for that. <laughs> he was a bunch of guys, because there was yeah. there was never an actual headstone for him, and they started a fundraiser to pay for a headstone mm-hmm. and put the I Am Providence near the Phillips family obelisk.
2: Well, So how did you get into Lovecraft? Was it the role-playing game or Creepy Uncle? Love... <laughs>
3: Weirdly enough, I, there was a role-playing game called Creepy Uncle. That oh, I would, okay. Yeah, and, um, uh, this is the first time you talked to There that. was a creepy uncle. Uh, <laughs> there was a uh, child services uh, representative. <laughs> there was a... Uh, you could, anyway, no. Um, you know, I grew up in the 80s in the suburbs of Virginia, and what I realized, what, thinking about it, was Lovecraft was just this thing that was always more or less in the air growing up. I didn't ever directly know about Lovecraft, except that... I read a lot of Stephen King. I read a lot of Harlan Ellison. I read Stephen King's Dance Macabre, which is basically the pathway to all worlds fantasy. Like that book is what leads you down the path to all the other stuff. It happened without me realizing it was happening just through osmosis. And it wasn't until I was in college that I really understood what they meant by Lovecraft and Cthulhu and all that yeah. stuff. So it was almost like when, when you did the episode on the novel Dracula, and mm-hmm. like there was this eerie effect where Dracula, and not till the end of the novel do they does anyone encounter him directly, but all you see are his effects on things around him. It's almost like the shark in Jaws. I saw the effects of Lovecraft on movies on writers on um there's some early David Bowie songs where he mentions the old ones and met, he was very obsessed with Lovecraft the man who sold the world is basically a Lovecraftian short story you know, wow. if you listen to it yeah so there were all these weird effects that i felt before i actually encountered the man. Evil so. Dead and whatnot. I think that was... Evil you know, Dead. Yeah. Was, oh, my God. Flat Out was yeah. Yeah, yeah It seems like awareness of the author's grown over the last decade. Well, I mean, my God, there's a modern library edition of him. Joyce Carol Oates has been embracing... it Between Joyce Carol Oates and Alan Moore and then this whole new legion of writers that I think have kind of picked up the Lovecraft banner and, and wanted to add to the mythos. And also, and not to... Th- Something about the times we live in, it does feel like we are brushing up against some kind of ancient evil that is... Not not in terms of just politics, but just in terms of the general atmosphere. There's no such thing as facts anymore. Right, there's, there's a little, like it's, so everything is so now. free-floating mm-hmm. that there is this very uncanny feel in the air, in the most mundane things, that has a very Lovecraftian feel to it. Just like when once the internet really started up and people started, after the fact, getting into Philip K. Dick and saying, "Oh, this guy was predicting living in different realities and what is even reality or what is even human anymore." Now we're like, "What is actual?" Forget reality. If I look at a cat and say, "Well, that's a cat," and people go, "That's your opinion," we're literally at that. We're at that stage right now. We're we're at that stage in a decay of reality where this stuff really, I think, hits with people a lot. When I tell people about the show we do, they go, oh, is that the
0: racist guy? It comes up more often now. And we're happy to talk about it. We talk about it on the show, but I was wondering if that... And I I think that also plays into the larger conversation that a lot of people are having now, which is can you
3: separate the artist from their work? Oh my God, yeah. And, And also, there's an interesting thing about Lovecraft that adds I think to the poignancy of him was yeah, he was, he was a pretty virulent, virulent I'm sure I'm saying that, that, that uh, word wrong, he was. He was. <laughs> well, pretty, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> he was pretty fucking racist. Yeah, yeah, but he was pretty fucking racist in that he was young, sheltered, very kind of fucked up, mm-hmm. and wrote that thing about if I was on the subway in New York, I had a machine gun, I would just spin around and kill all these blacks and Jews. And he had stories where the ultimate horror is that someone is of mixed race. Like exactly. That's, that's literally like it's wait so a minute. Terrifying. What the hell is mm-hmm. this? But then as he got older, it seemed like maybe he was, he never got a chance because he died, Mm -hmm. but he was starting to visit fans and travel more. There's part of me that wonders if he had lived into his 50s and 60s, would he have looked back on his, because he did have a almost lethal form of self-regard where he could really look at his shortcomings. And I wonder if that would have intensified or -hmm. if he would have just become even a worse crank. You only get so much wiggle room of going, well, he was of his time because there were plenty of people at that time that didn't have those fucking exactly. attitudes. So saying that he was of his time was, is a way of going, hey, he just didn't evolve he yeah. just didn't evolve, but maybe he would have, yeah. but, you know, I don't I know. Mean, we
2: have to look at everybody in, in history. I mean, Thomas Jefferson owned human beings, like, mm-hmm. and we still have monuments to him and regard him quite—we're able to look at him as yeah. a product of his time, and—
3: Look, I, I do think that Lovecraft's racism must always be a part of how we look at him and how we look at his stories. I just hope his shit doesn't fall into the wrong hands. I hope that they—I yeah. hope the wow. alt-right doesn't discover him and go, wow, the basis of, uh, all of our modern horror is because of uh, uh because of white supremacy you're welcome you're know, like if, if that happens and fuck everything but you know lovecraft country is going to be adapted for hbo
0: fairly soon and that's by about uh by uh, jordan, peele. jordan
3: peele and i'm sure he's going to have a ton of fun so, with that yeah, stuff i think yeah. this stuff is all going to bubble yeah, up pretty and he's, soon and he's the guy to do it when i heard that he was doing it, i'm like oh good this is going to be really really interesting
2: have you read it it's, I haven't read it. The horror of it is being black in the 1950s, and the Lovecraft stuff is kind of oh, I'm on sure. the side of it because it's it's about this travel book that in the 1950s, as a black person, you needed where you can go that was safe.
3: Oh, the, I wrote a whole... Th- I went to the um, Autry Museum. They had a whole thing about Route 66, and they talked about... It's called The Green Book for Travelers, mm-hmm. and it was for African-American people traveling through America, places to go, places not to go, where you could get a meal, where you couldn't get a meal. And I remember looking at this and, and was thinking... Oh, wow, things sucked in the 30s. And then I went and read about this book. It was published until 1968, 1968. So imagine if you were 18 years old in 1968, you're still alive and spry and aware now. And you can remember a time when you were young and intelligent going, there are satellites orbiting the Earth we have penicillin, we have supersonic travel, and we still have to carry books to tell us how not to get murdered when we're driving around the most advanced civilization the world has ever seen. Mm -hmm. How much of a mind fuck does that have to be if you're an African American in the 60s? My parents have to own basically a magic book out of a Grimm's fairy tale. Telling them where not to go, like what the? How do you reconcile that? Uh, and yeah, that is that is the ultimate horror. And we're in the modern
0: world now, so it's an ebook. <laughs> it you don't is don't even and have now to own a, the yeah, physical. Well, yeah, now
3: you got to download the app. Uh, it's it, a whole it's thing. Just, <laughs> the updates alone, it's a very yeah, uh, it's very glitchy. <laughs>
0: Oh, such a fun topic to riff on. Hey, let's talk about this author. I had not ever had any experience with Michael Shea before I'd heard the author's name, so thank you for suggesting it for the show. Yeah. How did you learn about him? How'd you get into him?
3: Again, all things Stephen King. Stephen King is the nexus of all worlds. If you were a horror nerd in the 80s, he was your, oh, let me me point you this way. He got me into Harlan Ellison. He got me into Ramsey Campbell and Shirley Jackson. And um, I think I was in in the library in Sterling, Virginia, and there was a hardback of Michael Shea's short story collection, Polyphemus. And I believe there was either a blurb by Stephen King or one of the librarians had put it on a display. Like, you know, if you like Stephen King, you'll like, and I grabbed it and read. It's one of the best short story collections. There's even a really genuinely funny Stephen King pastiche in the book called Uncle Tug. You know, when people talk about the combination of comedy and horror, and Mm -hmm. it almost never works. This thing is really, really funny about a guy I don't even want to spoil it. It's called Uncle Tug, and it's one of the funniest and most gruesome, horrifying fucking stories ever. Although a lot of Stephen King stories were to a point of gruesomeness that they were almost funny Mm -hmm. like survivor type Uh, gray matter mm -hmm. yeah uh, gray matter is the novel the white powder but with a six pack of beer yeah yeah
0: that's
1: (laughs) goddamn damn genius
0: i
3: remember the cat eating scene
0: in there oh god God damn it
3: (laughs) oh oh, oh, god well there was a very lovecraftian moment in gray matter where the guy talks about the, the bartender goes yeah some guy came in he used to work down in the sewer and he saw a giant spider eating like yeah eating kitties and he goes uh. i'm just gonna now sit here and drink myself to death then he goes there's things in this world that'll drive you mad just looking at him i'm like well that's the essence of lovecraft right there you go yeah so yeah and that's that's what led me to michael shea and then i became one of those anything written by michael shea mm-hmm. i will grab and read all of his tour paperbacks all of his i mean he was just amazing he won the uh, world fantasy award for the nift the Lean series Nift the Lean is a post-punk Lord of the Rings in the best sense of the word um, <laughs> that I cannot believe someone hasn't adapted as a huge Showtime, HBO, stars oh, really? television series. It's so goddamn brilliant. It's from the point of view of a bunch of guys who basically live in a Middle Earth kind of scenario and they're trying to write a guidebook and they pay adventurers. Like there are guys like Nift the Lean, that basically guys who go down into the dungeons and go, well, if you're going to do that anyway... I'll give you some extra money if you'll come back and just write down stuff you see for this guidebook. It's almost like they're putting together a rough guide of Middle Earth. <laughs> yeah, Nifflene is just different guys depending on who's telling the story about right. him. Right. Oh, that's great. Whether they cheated him or they were his friend, a scorned next lover they're like, oh, that guy was an asshole. What? this was amazing. Like, all his stuff is amazing. And you know, his first book, he was one of those weird, kind of didn't know what to do with his life, kind of guys. I think he went through some drug and alcohol stuff, and just one of those classic, just wandering the world. Yeah, he hits lumberjack hitchhiker, everything, and he was, I think he was up in Alaska, and he found a copy of Jack Vance's Dying Earth, one of his Dying Earth books, and then just wrote a sequel to it, because he liked the book so much, just, I'm gonna write a sequel to this, and then I think he sent it to Jack Vance, and Jack read it, and goes, I love this, yeah, publish it, go ahead, it was almost that Lovecraftian thing of, your world you made was so good, can I write a story off, he goes, absolutely, and that's how he started, it was called The Quest for
2: Symbolists? Yep, Good S- memory. Similis, yeah. We have it yeah. written
3: down here somewhere. And, uh, before, right? yeah. and that was his start. Because all of his things he did was like, ah, I just want to try this. <laughs> but he was such, from the get-go, he was an amazing one. You writer.
2: know, the crappy bit of that, though, is later Jack Vance goes, and he wrote, he wrote a sequel and kind of was like, that's not canon anymore. <laughs> you know, I want to do my own sequel now. So
3: Jack.
0: <laughs> Dummy. He also wrote a sequel to the Lovecraft story, The
3: Color Out of Space. And that was a novel called The Color Out of Time, I think in the 80s. I have excerpts that I've written down from that that I forgot to bring with me. There is an amazing sequence, and it really hit home for me because I remember growing up in Virginia, there were those kind of lake recreation areas where a lot of people would, they would call it caravan, and they would all tie their boats up together and have a big boat party. That is happening while this thing is pulling itself out of the lake, and the way he describes it, killing people, and just the the, the, the sense of not just killing people, but it's literally changing the reality that you know now that you're seeing it. Once you see it, you can't be the same person anymore. We should jump into the
0: story. Uh, yes. The title of it is Sothogua, a pretty prohibitive title if you're
3: not privy already <laughs> to this kind of stuff. That's like, the opening story in this collection, Copping Squid. <laughs> welcome to, Soth- to, Soth- to Hi. But I felt there
0: was like kind of a meta level to that <laughs> in that within the stories, you have people who are sort of in the know and you have people that aren't. Right. And I feel like right. he's... Saying, hey, if you're in the know, you're going to like this because you're going to know what this is. The monster, this entity, Sathagua, first was described in the Clark Ashton Smith story, The Tale of Satampra's Zeros, which we actually covered a few years ago. Yeah, Didn't remember that. (laughs) Um, In it, the protagonist encountered one of the entity's idols. Here's how it's described. He was very squat and pot-bellied. His head was more like a monstrous toad than a deity, and his whole body was covered with an imitation of short fur, giving somehow a vague sensation of both the bat and the sloth. His sleepy lids were half lowered over his globular eyes and the tip of a queer tongue issued from his fat mouth. And later it says he just likes to wait in divine slothfulness for sacrifices. So he's kind of a, I don't know, wow. what he's, is that a scary monster? It sounds a little more I like, don't know. he's kind of a stoner, you know.
3: But I will say tip of a queer tongue was one of my favorite porns of, <laughs> from the 80s. That was an amazing, amazing. Okay. So. And it's canon
0: mythos. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> Let's get into the story.
2: Sure. It starts yeah. off with an elderly woman, Marine, and she's sitting at a bus stop in San Francisco. Now, Shay lived in San Francisco. All these stories, all the stories we're going to cover take place in San Francisco, not a typical Lovecraftian location.
3: The whole collection is done like James Joyce's book, Dubliners, where it's all short stories, but they are interconnected. A man character from one will have a cameo in another. Other characters will reference events that happened earlier. So you get this whole portrait of a city under siege from different angles, from the rich parts of the city to the low. I lived in San Francisco for three years. There are very startling highs and lows in that city.
2: Yeah. You walk a block and then all of a sudden it's yeah. you're, you're Although totally I will different.
3: say this was written during a time before the tech boom, so the highs and lows have actually shrunk a little bit where it's way more highs and way less lows. The Tenderloin is vanishing. A lot of the county housing is vanishing. So it's also about a vanished era in a, in a ways.
0: As we heard in the opening reading, another older woman comes by. This is Maxie, presumably homeless, and she's pushing a shopping cart with a very sickly dog inside.
2: Marine decides to tell this woman that she should have that poor dog put sleep, not out of any kind of malice.
0: She's just lost a dog herself.
2: The old bag lady says, he's my dog. I'm not rushing him off to death. I'm going to take him home and give him a bath. And then Maureen is surprised by this because she's like, wait, you have a home?
0: Which I thought was such an authentic thing because oftentimes around L.A., and I'm not trying to make fun of homeless people at all, but they'll be like a hipster and I'll, I'll think it's a homeless person for a minute. Yeah. yeah. yeah
3: no. Well, there. So there. So there is a lot of, there are genuinely homeless people who would need help. And then there is a lot of performative uh, poverty amongst trust fund kids who are you know slumming yeah. the panhandler life like yeah I'm rough and it. it's like you're not. Your, your dad owns Exxon. I can see it.
0: <laughs> the main characters are older women, which is a unique choice not just for this genre, but for any genre. Well especially for Lovecraft. Lovecraft did not write
3: women well. No. If at all.
2: The only woman really that he wrote was an old man in a woman's body. <laughs> yeah. That
3: is true. Oh that's oh boy that's boy does that say a lot. Um that's true. Thing on the doorstep. Oh, That's God. Right, yeah. Ooh, And I've always thought about this story because they do have a wedding night. So basically, yeah. the dude... Has, oh, <laughs> yikes. Yeah. Um, yeah, that happened. Did, did the old man do that or did he grit his teeth and go, I got to do this just to yeah. make this thing work? That's oh. exactly what happened. Gah, yikes. <laughs> um, a lot of his stories, a lot of Michael Shea's stories involve the joys of really using your body physically in terms of like running long distances or walking. He loved mm-hmm. physical movement. I think he was addicted to that high. There's a story called The Grow Limb that basically is a guy jogging further and further and Nifty He's always like celebrating, hey, I'm healthy. I get to use my muscles and my body and mm-hmm. be aching. I love that. So there's a lot of that joy of just walking around the city. And they even say about, you know, oh, I know all the walkers in this city. Like, there are people that that's a lifestyle. Yeah. I just want to be outside walking. Kind of like Robert E. Howard's Iron Thews. Yes, <laughs> Iron Fuse. <laughs> <laughs>
2: the, the story follows the shopping cart lady, Maxie, and her whippet, Ramses. The night before, Maxie and Ramses shared a sleeping bag near the Legion of Honor Fine Arts Museum. And she sleeps outdoors sometimes, most likely because where she lives isn't very great.
3: Yeah, she lives in a really sketchy house. And again, Michael Shea makes having a little fire can outside and mm-hmm. a thing of soup. The, he makes it sound very appealing, although having lived in San Francisco for three years, sleeping outside in San Francisco with the fog and the cold actually yeah. would not be that fun. I know. San Francisco's cold,
0: man, yeah. even in June. It's
2: just Oof. humid, damp, the dampness but in the morning. But it's a
3: damp coldness. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, she also made a decision I think at some point that she's going to spend two thirds of her life
2: outside. Right.
0: Yeah. Now that she's getting older, she thinks, why would I want to spend my time in a box? Exactly.
2: Now, at the place where she lives it's community housing and there are a lot of drug dealers and gang members that live in this place and they don't really have anything else in life than to kind of lord over the other tenants of this place
0: and as she comes home she gets into an argument with one of these fellas who she thinks of as dog because that's what he calls everybody else and he tries to hit her up for some protection money but she's in no mood for it after that altercation she had she says get your lazy candy ass out of my way he shoves her back for saying that and she escapes into her apartment she knows
3: that she kind of
2: Went too far. Went a little One too far. To,
3: yeah. And now he's going to sit and brood and retaliate about that if she doesn't get out of there.
2: These characters are poor, and that's something that Lovecraft never really wrote about, having characters that were in poverty, unless they were evil cultists. It's a
3: very Stephen King thing to have a character where they are very, very aware of their finances, and Stephen King is aware of what it means, okay, this person makes this much money a year, which means you can afford this, and this, but these things you can't, and that is a an amazing way to hook a reader. The most Stephen King moment of, everyone talks about how, oh, God's Stranger Things, it's such a Stephen King with the monster. No, the most Stephen King moment about Stranger Things is in the first episode when Winona Ryder is asking her boss for an extension on her pay so she can keep her phone on. That's a real Stephen King thing. And Michael Shea really Pulls it in here. She's at one point thinking,
0: "If I don't spend this, then I can have one more drink later." Yes, exactly. Which is that inventory you constantly have to be doing in your head yeah. when you know your mm-hmm. bank account's near zero. Yeah. And I, yeah. that's so authentic. I thought he was. Yeah. You
2: no, know, I I wonder if this poverty does that accentuate or diminish the cosmic horror of things? Because if your life is already not great, does that impact of the cosmic dread coming in, is that a lesson?
3: I'm going to argue something here. In, in this story, and in a lot of these stories in Copping Squid, the people that are living in poverty, they're living well. In other words, yes, I'm living in poverty, but I'm enjoying the air. And when I have a drink, I appreciate it. When I have a hot cup of soup at night with my fire can, I savor it. To me, a pleasure is time alone to read The Guns of August. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm actually more in tune with life. Where someone like Maureen, who's wealthy, is not in touch with anything. She's just sitting in a barco lounger, mindlessly shoveling food into her mouth. So I think it's actually way more of a cosmic horror because the horror of the story is to have all pleasure and sensation stripped from you, but be left with your consciousness and not ever again be able to enjoy cold air on your skin or your lungs burning because you had a really good long walk but you feel alive someone like Maxie feels feels alive, and so she has more at stake than someone like Maureen, who's already halfway dead, as you'll see later. You know what I'm saying? So the way that he juxtaposes that is really incredible.
0: I was going to ask you for The Guns of August you thought was significant to the text, or the other book she's reading is Due North by Mitchell Smith. That's about a woman whose husband is mauled by a bear, I think, (laughs) and it happens in front of her, and then it's kind of her return to civilization after that.
3: The Guns of August, you could argue, Barbara, um, God, who wrote that? Tuckman is, you know, a couple of seemingly minor things, a wrong turn and the assassin going in to get a sandwich and then seeing the car that he'd been tracking, ends up starting World War One. Basically yeah. a whole generation gets fed into the maw of this horror. I don't really know about the other book. I've read The Guns of August, which is an amazing book. Well, I
0: think you just paid, that's exactly why <laughs> yeah, it's tied yeah, yeah, in there, yeah,
3: yeah. you know, because that's what we're seeing here are all the little tiny symptoms. But even beyond that, though, a- a- again, Maxie is actually living life. She is reading a big, deep book that you you can chew on. And they even say she immediately loses herself in that world. Like, Mm. that is real pleasure. Whereas someone like Maureen would be like, you're sitting in a laundry room reading a book? (laughs) When we actually do go back to Maureen,
0: we find her back at home. She's got a nice house with a good-sized backyard. I thought it was interesting that the reintroduction to her character, she's watering her garden. So yeah. she's got everything under tight control there, whereas Maxie mm-hmm. is all about wild nature and being out Exactly.
3: In Even yeah. the way that they describe Maureen's hair versus Maxie's hair, Maxie's hair is a wild tangle, and Maureen's is all nicely exactly. prim, and it, it's just great imagery.
2: Two doors over, there is a big mastiff, King, who barks all the time, and Maureen has talked to the owners, these uh, this <laughs> couple, Wyatt and Eve, but they have done nothing to control this dog. Mm-hmm. Maureen has her own new little dog, it it's called Muffin, and Muffin was a rescue dog that she got after her her other dog, Buddy, passed away. Now, she's in the garden watering some plants, and then out of the hose comes these black little globule Mm -hmm. gross bits, and then it just goes back to being regular water. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. It's the classic Lovecraftian the ominous portents.
2: Yeah. yes, Which are
3: always scarier and creepier than when you finally see the monster. Although I think in this case, Michael Shea introduces the monster in such an amazing way, which we'll get to, but yeah,
0: ominous portents. I was wondering, so Maureen and Maxie both are sort of in a place of loss when we start the story. Mm-hmm. Maybe Maxie, not directly. It was fifteen years ago that her husband died, but her current pet is on the way out. Exactly. And then uh, Maureen has just lost an animal and is trying to replace it. Why are we starting with the characters this way? That they're in this because. Place-
3: Maxie is the kind of person that because she actually cared about who she was with and loved deeply and lived deeply still feels the loss of her husband is going to hang on to this dog and Maureen is like oh I love things too but the minute they're inconvenient you just get rid of them and get something new Mm. you know she's not really connected to anything Maxie is like I'm gonna heat a little bowl of soup I'm savoring it whereas Maureen will mindlessly eat a bag of Cheetos and never really taste them never really enjoy them it's just something to do while she's watching a show that the minute the show's done like what was that show about I don't know it was just on just watch. I don't care. Describe last evening for me. (laughs) When we come
0: back to Maxie, she's at this bar with her friend Vera, who's an older black woman. And Vera tells Maxie about a strange incident, an ominous portent that happened around 2 a.m. the night before.
2: Yeah. So she's walking in the park and she sees this man lying on a bench under a light and he seems to be having some kind of seizure. Now the path curves around. So there's trees. So she goes along the path that she loses sight of this man. And as she comes around this curve, she sees that his legs are gone. On? There are empty pants. The, the, well, the pant legs are flat. Yes.
3: But she'd seen his legs kicking exactly. before. Right. It's such a weird image. You could see how cinematic that would be if you filmed that just right. Yeah. Like a Guillermo del Toro. Here's the legs kicking, and then we, we circle around, and then suddenly the pant legs are there, but there's nothing in there's them anymore. In them. What the f-
2: So she, she goes over to see what's going on, and then there's something moving in the grass. So she goes over to the grass, and she sees these things sort of slithering off, but she can't really make out what it is exactly. She can just see the grass moving and hear that sound, that skittering, that slithering very effective oh
0: and that's the point where she looks at her
3: liquor bottle and shakes her head and throws it (laughs) on
2: (laughs) yeah the (laughs) bottle with three x's on it Yeah, yeah that's right
3: he has these great little throwaway adjectives for things i mean not even when he's describing horror like um this one the sun while still an hour high sank into a rising layer of mist and dimmed to a martian wafer brick red
2: a Martian wafer mm. what
3: that's so great mmm so that, delicious it, oh it is
2: delicious <laughs> later that night is getting ready to sleep outdoors again and she finds a quiet spot in the woods looking down at the golden gate and she settles in for the night
0: in the trees a few yards away she notices some foamy runoff which is odd because it hasn't rained in a long time she gets up to inspect it just then she hears a voice from behind her that says you ought to watch out for that stuff
2: she's startled by this and it's just this old guy with a handlebar mustache
0: and that mustache is described just as well it says it made Maxie think of a ragged white alley cat draped over a fence <laughs>
2: (laughs) I think he's describing John Bolton. We'll cut that out. (laughs) She she chastises him for sneaking up on her, and he says, look, you got to watch out for the stuff that's coming out of the ground, anything that comes out of the water table. Uh, Maxie is pretty antagonistic towards him, but he warns her and then just moves on, and she dismisses him as being a crazy old dude and goes to sleep.
3: That is such a San Francisco thing, by the way. There's always some older hippie that's like, let me tell you about the aquifer, man. (laughs) See, th- there's always someone that knows his geology, and there's always some guy that's going, see, that's, that's poor as shale. It's porous shale. And they're going to be, you know, so anyway. see
2: <laughs> she- <laughs> Meanwhile, Marine has fallen asleep on her parka lounger with Muffin on her lap. She gets a strange feeling on her thighs, and then she sort of comes to, looks down, and sees uh, Muffin. And Muffin's all happy, looks up at her, but his legs are missing. But not like Ugh. been chopped off; they're just it's smoothed over, like he never had legs. He's like a little tube of puppy.
3: D- doesn't even seem to be in pain. He's not alarmed. He's uh. not freaking out. He's like, oh, I don't, I don't have legs now. <laughs> that was that was the sentence. He was just a plump, furry tube, and
0: everything up. <laughs> then had been really spooky and but this is when I got hooked to, yeah. you know by this author because there's something about that like you say he's not spooked, it's nope. smooth, there's no wound, there's no
3: gore. Yeah. Michael Shea really, really describes this from the point of view of if you were going to be consumed by one of these entities, just like drugs or just like a cult, it starts off very pleasant Mm -hmm. and it's way too late before you realize what the bad effects are and that's where the horror is Mm -hmm. we from the outside can see wait a minute this is fucked up get out of the house now (laughs) which is like it seems fine.
2: She puts the dog down, calls the vet's emergency line, but when she looks back, Muffin is just gone. He's somehow he's moved away, even though he has no legs. She vet's hears,
3: emergency line: If your dog's been consumed by a Cthulian entity, please press three. She here's Sorry, the, she hears the, I miss
2: it wasn't as a human operator saying. <laughs> <that>. she, <laughs> she hears the sound of the doggy door opening and it's Marine's cat. The cat goes over and eats some of, the, of its food, and Marine, getting nowhere with the vet, decides to call nine one one.
1: And a slithery scrabbling and the rattle of spilt kibble brought her head round. Tasha lay, half in shadow, thrashing mightily, and what looked like long tapery fish with froggy skin, three of them were eating her legs. Three of her legs as the cat kicked and thrashed them in the air and clawed at them with her one free paw. But the fish, muscular, powerful, swallowed her legs into their froggy tubes with great gulps, lurching closer to her torso. Four of them now, for Tasha's tail was also taken by yet another of the little monsters that lurched suddenly from the darkness. "'Oh, dear God, in heaven, what was happening?' (laughs) What is happening? Same question I'm asking.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So from behind the couch comes this giant tadpole thing. And Marie knows that this thing is muffin or muffin has become this thing. Mm
0: -hmm. It slithers over, you eat the cat, and she stumbles back from it into her bark lounger.
2: Now, her reaction, this is strange and interesting, very different, is that she feels calm. Like she's seeing something amazing, a miracle. She feels that she is being allowed this very special experience to see this magnificent event.
0: And that's where we learn and we see that she might have some self-awareness. It says she was not the futile, undistinguished woman she had, unknown to herself, feared that she was. She was being shown a miracle and it filled her with gratitude. Or perhaps this terror simply had made her insane, which was my question. Has she just gone nuts and that's why she's calm or is the monster chilling well, her out Well, except
3: somehow? that, you know what? It could be both, but keep that line in mind. Was she being shown a miracle? That's going to come up in a future episode when we talk about mm. the story Copping Squid. That comes up again and it's it's, it's an aspect of Lovecraft that I think even Lovecraft never explored that Michael Shea does you're being shown a miracle that line jumps out and keeps coming back.
0: And Marine, with that feeling, relaxes into the bark lounger. We leave her there
1: for now.
2: The next morning, Maxie is up at sunrise and on the move. She notices that the water pools have this frothy foam and again wonders where it's all coming from because it hasn't rained in months. Out mm-hmm. in the woods, a Hannibal mustache approaches Maxie again, trying not to surprise her. She asks him if he knows what's going on. He says, Oh, yeah, I know what's going on, but it's hard to explain.
0: <laughs> she decides to go with him and he introduces himself as Leon. He leads her on a tough hike through the woods and they arrive at this gully and there's a stream creeping out of the cliffside across the way.
2: Yeah, Maxie notices it doesn't seem like it's flowing, and Leon says, it is, it's just really thick slime. He says, this
0: is where all of the foam that
2: you've seen along the beach is coming from, this one place. Now, Maxie doesn't feel like this explains anything, really, and Leon says, well, you can come back tonight. You're going to see some crazy
0: stuff. Yeah, thank God this is a weird <laughs> fiction, because if it were a reality, the crazy stuff would just be his penis. <laughs> yeah.
2: Back to Marie, she wakes up on her lounger. She sits there for hours, just feeling this golden wholeness, a relaxed vibrance. She also feels like she's just more than one entity, that she's different entities in her body. And then she realizes that she doesn't have any eyelids anymore, and her body is changing.
1: Then, huge jawed, her skin a glossy armor, tough as leather, she wrenched free of her robe. She leapt in a cavorting dolphin's arc from the barca lounger and hit the floor with the four surprises of little legs and clawed feet to break her impact. She scrabbled and slithered toward the front door. By God in heaven, Maureen was hungry. Cavorting
3: part of the horror is this would almost look comical and playful. Yeah. The word cavorting is such a good choice to describe a monster as cavorting. It's like, wait, what? It's so weird. It's sort of like when Lovecraft uses the verb nuzzle. You oh, know right, yeah. There's yeah. something about it that's like, cute. Wait a second. Wait wait, like- no, 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 no.
2: <laughs> But Maureen is loving the way that this feels. She tries to bash down the front door, but she's not strong enough and it hurts her face. So she busts out the back window into the yard.
0: And she hears the strains of Barry Manilow and realizes that her neighbors with the jerky dog are out in their jacuzzi.
3: And she starts digging under the fence so she can get to them. I wish he had named what Manilow song, though. I know. Though. Like, what's the soundtrack to this scene? I would th- I would like it to be ready to take the chance again. That's what Me- that was it, Yeah. There is kind of a Lovecraftian tinge to yeah. that song. I'm ready to take, take the chance, chance again. again. Like, he's ready to transform and, and mm-hmm. get out there. Yeah. That's you know. so funny. We were just saying that was over what, there, there, was, there was that song by that Christian metal group called Pod, um, uh, now that I see you, I can never look away. And now that I see you, I believe no matter what they say. <laughs> I always like to imagine that he's singing it about Cthulhu. <laughs> but he's gone insane at the end of every short story.
0: That's so crazy because there was a band called Mortal. There yeah. was a Christian industrial band that uh-huh. I heard in college and I loved them, but I couldn't get past the God is in control. And I go,
3: I'm just going to imagine they're singing that about, you know, Dagon yeah, or something. Exactly. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah.
0: how I got through it. Same oh yeah. It,
3: it's the, uh, it, the song's called Alive. We're like, ah I, uh, I feel so alive <laughs> for the very first. I'm like, this is the same rhythm and inflections yeah. at the end of every Lovecraft story when the guy is finally losing his mind uh-huh. and just, I'm giving myself over to you. Can, can you sing a little more of that for us? Uh, yeah. Let me start from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, golly. Uh, So uh, the marine frog digs her way through the neighbor's yard, and she's able to just jump up, and she gets her whole mouth around the dog king.
1: Maureen rose like a geyser of hunger, a craving void that must obliterate this beast. King had spirit. He yelped, he snarled, he lunged into Maureen's widening, uprushing jaws, which possessed his forelegs, head, and chest, and lifted his struggling hindquarters skywards. The game brute was chewing ferociously on Maureen's tongue, a massy organ that felt not pain but tingling imminence. And then that tongue swelled and thrust more deeply into King's throat, a thick, expanding root that exploded King's skull within her mouth. She heaved him back, and yet again back, bagging the dog, near inert now, just tremoring, all the way down her gullet."
0: Mm -hmm. Keep in mind that Barry Manilow was playing that whole
2: time. Yeah. Yeah. So Wyatt and Eve are totally oblivious to this in their jacuzzi. Maureen can feel the dog inside of her becoming part of her, and she's also growing as she digests. She's getting bigger, and she seems to be becoming some kind of giant frog, not unlike Sothogba. Wyatt finally notices her, and just as he does, she jumps up, she leaps across the yard, and she just gets him in her mouth, and then she's able to pin down Eve while she's mowing down on this poor dude.
3: The the, the eating of the dog is, if you're outside of Maureen, it's silent. She takes him down in one gulp. Then she shoves that huge tongue into king's mouth and then flexes it and explodes his skull yeah but you don't hear any of that and there, there's something so unnerving the bubbles of the jacuzzi the barry manilow mm-hmm. you know and by the <laughs> way barry manilow was responsible for more people being eaten by <laughs> entities, i think than anything and i think i'm glad that shay finally addresses that somebody in he connected story.
0: the story you know, yeah.
3: he really did yeah, yeah. yeah and he just a big cover-up
2: uh then finally marine eats eve and then just sits there digesting the jacuzzi just
0: chills and communes with her new guests because she can feel all their memories and and their. Physical bodies and everything inside of her. And then she has this idea I need to get to big water because I've got eggs inside. Oh, God. It feels like there's somebody I need to meet, like there's another somebody out there for me. It kind of is
3: like a Ghostbusters. You know, she's got to find a Rick Moranis kind of yeah. situation. Yeah. Oh, that. I'm sorry. Can I read something really quick? This Absolutely. is e- this is after Maureen jumps in the jacuzzi mm-hmm. with Eve and Wyatt. She sat in the water with Eve, pinning her against the tub's rim. Maureen and Eve both sat astonished. Eve, at Wyatt's vanishing, and Maureen, at Wyatt's arrival within her, for as her cauldron's belly acids licked him swiftly to bone, his mind, his memories coalesced within her own. Licked him swiftly to bone. Yeah. Gah. God. His descriptions are Anyway, go ahead. Shane sorry. Is, he does great bone work. He does great I mean work. it. Good. Hey, if you want good digestion, you want Shay. <laughs> hey. Hey, we got a good digestion guy in this. Yeah, get Shay in. Hey, he's good. <laughs> I don't believe it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Sorry to keep interrupting. No. That's, that's why we
0: asked you to come. That's okay. why
2: you're here to interrupt. Yeah. Please.
0: Um, back with Maxie. She's hanging in a bar in the Castro called the Gin and Beer It. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> she, we see It there. just
0: gets me every time. Leon walks in with a companion he introduces as Miss D, another older woman with a handsome face and an old-fashioned walking stick.
2: Miss D is personable, and she buys Maxi a drink. Leon pulls them over to a table, and D finally lays things out for Maxi.
0: She's got this battered gray book that she reads out of, and this is uh, you know all the mythos stuff she's got in
2: that book. Right. Yeah, she says, the earth is beset by titans. The great old ones swim like krakens through the deep. Time and again they find us, and worlds that have been, and worlds that have yet to be.
3: She describes San Francisco as this colorful stained glass window. They're swimming in darkness, and then they look up and they see, oh, it's like this pretty window. They want to crash through it and see what the lights and the colors are.
2: Reading from the book, she name drops Cthulhu, Dagon, and of course, Sithagua. Then Leon says, Sithagua. that's the one you can meet for yourself. Right where I showed you, you can meet him tonight. Then you'll know some shit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> then you'll know some shit. But also meet, you know? It's an right, odd yeah.
2: phrasing, like he's, like he's doing a book signing <laughs> yeah. <and> yeah. <laughs>
0: checking back in with the Maureen Monster, she has moved over to Golden Gate Park and is now as big as a VW Bug. Gotta bring up VW Bugs. Yep. Since yep.
3: we're in San Francisco.
2: So on the way, she ate a jogger and gobbled a wildly kicking cop off his motorbike.
3: That's almost a silver Silverstein description of... <laughs> Because, again, they're throwaways. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then she ate a jogger and a cop. they almost right. And a wildly kicking cop. Yeah. And a boy named Sue. And a, okay. <laughs> but it's also horrifying. It, uh, if it is. had
0: just said it and then she ate a cop, I would be mad. Why didn't I get that story? <laughs> but the wildly kicking adjective tells yeah, me everything mean, I need to uh, know. Hey, I got a little flair there. That's good yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we have our meet
2: cute here. Yeah. She gets, oh, <laughs> yes. She gets to the lake and she sees <laughs> teenagers in a paddle boat. They've broken the lock on it and they're out drinking. Shouldn't be doing that. So she's about to eat them. And boom, another monster like her comes out under the boat, knocks them in the water, and then just eats them. It was yep. he,
0: and his feeding was her own. She felt it in her own bowels, and her unborn young rejoiced in the feast. Maureen and he were already one.
2: They meet, and they go to the other side of the lake.
0: And the scene is pretty steamy, so I was kind of hoping we could get you to, to read it.
3: In the silken dark, buoyant as bubbles, they met. They clasped foreclaws and spun and tumbled and spiraled in the satiny deep. For the first time in her life, Maureen knew love and knew its consummation was at hand. She broke their grip and swam toward the lake rim, a muddy cove she found, curtained by leafy vines, and into this she climbed, leaving only her hindquarters in the water, and waited his advent. His great smooth underbelly surged under her back. He locked his forelegs round her throat, his hind legs round her mighty thighs. His cloacum hung just atop her own, still shallowly submerged. In a delirium of fulfillment, Maureen unpent her eggs and felt them bubble unendingly from her cloacum.
2: Woo!
3: <gasps> 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 Got hot in here. Yeah. You're welcome, ladies. <laughs> so you've been shaded. <laughs> Goodness. You gotta do you, you gotta commission someone to do a Harlequin romance cover called His Dark Advent. And it's and it's these two toad things, but one of the toad things has a white shirt like unbuttoned yes. like to his navel and it's his oh. dark advent. Oh
2: yes. Mm. Oh that's hot. Oh, that's hot. Come on. Uh, so they decouple and Barine follows her mate into the foliage. Yes. Uh, meanwhile, Maxie, D, and Leon go to the site from before. D says if they can hurt it, it can be fought. That's right from Predator. I know. If <laughs> Means it bleeds, we, leads, can, kill we it. can kill it. <laughs> 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 but Maxie isn't quite sold on all this stuff, but Leon says, you will be. They hide in the grass and wait.
3: He's kind of like a hype man. You're going to meet him. Totally. You're going to see some shit. Oh, you will be.
0: I oh,
2: got
3: to show ready? you. Yeah. <laughs> Boy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and here, here's the moment where the story, the two parallel paths collide. Maureen is still super excited as her monstery self to be part of this monstery couple. And she follows her mate to that cliff face where the male thing pushes itself into the cave. Just as she's about to follow, oh, a tiny dog jumps up and bites her eye.
3: <laughs> uh, What did you say earlier? She, did... she just, yeah, she just had amazing sex and then gets bitten in the eye by <laughs> a dog. Which, by the way, story of my life. <laughs> um, We,
2: uh... <laughs> At least, at least you've had amazing sex. Yeah, I mean, come on. True. there You, you on. got that going for you. You just yeah. have
3: the, the dog bite on yeah, the eye. That's eyes. all I've ever had. Ridiculous. Just get,
2: that's all I get.
3: Hey, I can't win here. You know? <laughs> you turn into a Lovecraftian entity, and then a dog bites you. Boy, the week I've had. This is Cthulhu. Don't get me started. Oh. oh we... Hey, relax. <laughs> we should... Hey, I don't get no transfiguration. That's the story of my life. I get no transfiguration. Oh. Hey. We we ship <laughs> we ship for sp- Rodney Dagenfield. There oh it is. God. Oh my God, Rodney da- Dagenfield. That's it. Oh my God, I got Scott
0: for a theme restaurant. Yeah, Rodney Dagenfield. Cool. <laughs> hey, hey, I was trying to. Down the Dagon's cave. <laughs> hey, <laughs> We <laughs> fish
2: tie. We oh
3: God, Rodney Dagenfield. Oh my God, we back we... to school.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: I love it. There you go.
2: Oh, boy. We shift perspective back to Maxie, who is in a bit of rapture seeing the impossible (laughs) so plainly, as Shea puts it. But then we realize that the dog is hers. It's Ramses, who's found this energy that he didn't have before, and he just goes nuts and attacks these frog things. Maxie has to watch it as he is brutally killed.
0: Then a giant tongue of some kind kind of comes up out of the cliff face and pulls the Maureen monster in, sort of a a stage hook. So from
2: from from (laughs) Maureen's point of view, she's pulled into... this alien landscape with a giant eye that looks at her and it communicates all you've seen and done is mine all you know I will forever know Her flesh is ripped away in a giant cave of acid, and she becomes a purely spiritual being.
0: And this is the really horrible moment for her, right? Yes. She's being stripped of her identity, and she finally understands, oh, this isn't a good thing being
3: assimilated. Here's my argument against that. Okay. It's not that she's being stripped of her identity. It's that her identity is now under the control of – she can remember Uh. her life – her wants, Mm -hmm. her desires, but she can never live beyond that. It's just this thing. This monster comes by every now and then. They even say he just kind of grazes these lives and plays with them, but she can never communicate with anyone again. Mm -hmm. She'll always, she'll remember love. She'll remember loss and warmth, but never be able to act on that. And she'll also never be released from this ever. Mm -hmm. She'll always just be wanting and alone and floating. And she also realizes, not only does she get to keep her identity, this is the passage I want to read. She has shown how small that identity is in relation to the universe. Yeah. Listen to this. This is when she's inside um, inside the stomach, getting dissolved. And when she really reached, dear God, she found a wealth indeed. She entered an astonishingly detailed landscape. Sunsets on planets unknown. War is fought in alien bodies. Unspeakable grapplings of these indescribable bodies. Entered grieving reminisces, entered the beloved winds of a carven ice world, where wolfish beings skated on paws of polished bone and exultingly drank moonlight, forever gone. Entered amoebic manta rays, winging like gossamer through maroon oceans of methane, balletically copulating within a gas-giant homeworld, forever gone. Entered long-fingered saurians, graceful as butterflies on water wings like great-ribbed fans farming the continental shelves of amber seas, forever gone. And suddenly she heard, understood the ghostly tumult of remembered voices arising from this multitude. It was a stentorian chorus of woe everlasting. And so she's about to join this world of similarly dissolved and consumed and engulfed things that can remember life, never go back to it, will always miss it, but will always be in that state of regret and horror and sadness forever. Oh, man. She's never escaping this. And her life was, she's gonna forever pine for what? Mm. a barco lounger yeah. crappy snacks forgettable TV shows mm-hmm. she's going to pine for a life that she realized she wasted because yeah. she's going to compare to these other lives of these epic things that were also consumed it is horror upon horror upon horror if she were to have her personality stripped away that would be a, a mercy what
0: you're describing is so much worse than what I was uh, reading she's going to
3: remember being Maureen yeah but never gets to go back that's just oh god it's so horrifying well that really feeds into he keeps bringing up in some of the
0: other stories woe and sadness yeah. Mm-hmm. and this sort of longing that's coming from the great old ones, which I found odd, yeah. but that really kind of invests in it what I was looking for. This is what
3: D reads about Tasagua. But of these titans, Tasagua's is the deepest, most chthonic hunger. His meal is meat and mines. The populations he's plundered seethe in his belly, time without end, their spirits intact. Aha! A mighty choir of woeful souls, each life a self knowing cell of the toad gods entrails wherein the greedy movement of their devourer's mind sweeps through them as Tithagoa again and again relishes each life individually like a miser gloating on his hoard. You're Mm. just a momentary, libidinal, masturbatory fantasy for this god freak.
2: But you still have to exist. You're still conscious. You still know know what's going on. Forever. Forever. And the only sensation that you're
3: ever going to have, again, besides your memories, is this evil thing just brushing against you going, nice. And then moving (laughs) on. And then he'll come back in a millennium. (laughs) He'll oh, be back man. in another millennium. Like, yeah. that's that's your life from now on. Oh. I don't think I really understood that. And you're surrounded by screaming forever. Yeah. And it's screaming in other languages. You can't even communicate with them. Yeah. they are weird methane beasts and dinosaurs. And the idea of, of long-fingered saurians, it means that this thing has existed throughout time. Yeah. Yeah. It consumed dinosaurs. It, it's
0: Brilliant traveled through space.
2: Worlds. It's just, oh my yes. God. And consumed these creatures and made it part yeah. of who it is. Exactly.
0: Well, Ooh. the next morning, Maxie, Leon, and D all awakened because they were so enwrapped by the impossible that they'd seen. They kind of entered this dreamlike state and ended up falling asleep there. When they wake up, that's when Mrs. D reads that section out of the book so they have an <laughs> yeah. understanding, probably better than I did, mm-hmm. of what's actually going on here.
2: So Maxie, Whoa. this cat comes up to them, it's a dirty old stray, and Maxie gives it some cheese, and then the cat jumps into her cart. Now Maxie feels like this cat needs a friend, and now since her dog is dead, she does as well. Mm-hmm. Then Leon and Dee and Maxie, they all go together back to Pete's bar. Beera shows up and tells Maxie that's Something's happened over at her apartment building. The cops showed up, Seems some big animal ate the guy dog that was giving her a problem. <laughs> and uh, Vera <laughs> decides to join them at the table and this is how the story ends.
1: The four of them talked for a considerable while. A short silence followed. I think I'll have to move out, Maxie mused. Move in with me, Dee said. Room to yourself, though you might share sometimes with my young friend's cat. We should all be drawing together anyway. All of us who know
3: I love that line. We should all be drawing together, those of us who know. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they're forming this this midnight justice league. <laughs> but, yeah. but they're just, yeah. but they are the outcasts and weirdos of the city that everyone ignores, but they're the ones who know. Yeah. I'm watching a show right now called The Looming Tower, and it's about the lead up to 9-11, which starts back during the Lewinsky trials. Mm-hmm. And the people who knew in the State Department and FBI that could kind of sense what was coming were these outcasts and weirdos that people didn't want to listen to, and they got shunted from department to department. Mm-hmm because they were abrasive and maybe lacked in social skills, but they were the ones who were wired into it. The tragedy was they were the ones who actually knew. So there's a weird parallel here where, yeah, it's the people, they're not living in the rat race, I must acquire more wealth world. They Mm -hmm. are in the, no, I just want to survive small and live small, but I get the bigger picture. But the people that need to be listening to me don't even see me.
2: Actually, that reminds me of the lady that helped find the body of Richard III. She was a, a nutty nut who there's like fan club Richard the Third fan clubs and she had this whole theory about where he his body was because nobody knew where his body was. Yeah, spent, right. It was
0: like in a parking lot. It right? was in
2: a parking and she figured it out. And yeah. everybody was like, "You're crazy!" And she put all of her money into it. It was her own project. She had a club of Richard the Third nuts, and there were mm-hmm. all these total outliers. And the first place they dug, there it was. <laughs> Amazing. It was insane. Something about these people that are on the outside that maybe they've got the energy or the time or maybe they're just tuned in to a way that they can see things Mm -hmm. differently than everybody else can.
3: But and, having that advantage, you pay for it in you, you kind of lose your social antenna. Yeah. But that's classic Lovecraft. The people that are in tune with the horror and what's going on are weird itinerant sailors or students that are outcasts in their college and aren't going to all the fun parties uh-huh. or the little weird... If this is the Breakfast Club, they're the... um Ali the, the, Sheedy? Ally Sheedy. They're the Ally Sheedy. <laughs> of all the people in the Breakfast Club, Ali Sheedy would be the first to sense oh, when Cthulhu's sure. coming. Yeah. Yeah, of yeah. course,
0: of course. I thought this was a fantastic introductory story to the volume because I felt that excitement at the end of the story of they're getting the team together. It's starting. You know what I mean? It had that kind of Avengers-esque feeling to it. It does,
3: but it also has this really great feeling of not only, yeah, this is a great Cthulhu mythos story, but it's also, and and again, I know I'm a little bit evangelical about this guy, it is a great introduction to Michael Shea, to knowing this is the kind of stuff you get to experience when you read his writing, these descriptions, these events that he created. Yeah. He describes Cthulian monster sex in a way that, yeah, it is steamy, but it's also terrifying because <laughs> you realize <laughs> oh, yeah. that. Not not like saying yeah wait, it is steamy. Wait a minute, yeah, hold
2: yeah. on. Yeah, it's Stevie. I don't <laughs> I, I,
0: Oh, that wasn't a joke.
2: Well, that wasn't. I was. I was joking. I'm. I'm but, a little but, concerned but now but that the, you Well, because he
3: did, because she is experiencing ecstasy. <laughs> like sure. Yeah. Like, yes. again, the character, not that, not you. We can all relate. No, to not that. me. I'm no. not going. Oh yeah, get that climax. Okay, are, are you?
2: just um, <laughs> I'm just checking. I'm just checking.
3: But I am saying that. Part of her being drawn into this much is it has to be very pleasurable and yes. seductive to her. And he describes how horrifying that is, how yes. it is seductive. And you're like, oh, my God, these two things fucking is the end of the world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the end of the world. And, folks, that's also the end of the show. Sothogua by Michael Shea, a great story. And thanks so much to Patton Oswalt for taking the time to discuss it with us. As hinted, Patton will be joining us again soon. We're going to be covering another Michael Shea story, the Dagoni ad, in the next couple of months, so keep a lookout for that. And Patton will also be joining us for a look at Shea's Copping Squid. And everybody, we are now on Patreon at patreon.com slash witchhousemedia. We soft launched this week and we'll be feverishly adding our back catalog over the next couple weeks. If you're a current subscriber to our show, no problem. Just sign up on Patreon and we'll take care of canceling your PayPal subscription as well as refunding any recent charges. You don't have to do anything else, but sign up at Patreon. We're still offering one free show a month, three additional shows for subscribers. And if you sign up on Patreon, you can get a listener comments show monthly, as well as an additional show discussing whatever you want us to discuss. It doesn't have to be books. We'll talk about anything. There are also a few more rewards there, so please check it out. Enough of the hard pitch. Check us out at patreon.com. If you have any questions, email us at witchhousemedia at gmail.com. Chris and I will be back next week with The Burial of the Rats by Bram Stoker. You've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com.
3: H.P. Woo!